you end up thinking that your your presence is more important to your business than it is, and really, you probably do better if you just kind of got out of the way. This is Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Entrepreneur House podcast. The Entrepreneur House is a business accelerator for established entrepreneurs creating events and retreats all over the world. If you're ready to take your business to the next level with other successful entrepreneurs, be sure to apply at theentrepreneurhouse.com. And now, on to today's episode. Today, listeners, we are joined by the founder of HighCapin.com and Agile Travel Bag, Matt Kowalik. Matt is the go-to man when it comes to manufacturing apparel in China. HighCapin focuses on improving procurement and production processes for their clients that could typically encounter communication, logistical, and quality problems with manufacturers. Matt also created the Agile Travel Bag and recently launched it on Kickstarter. Today, we address the current state of manufacturing in China and where it's headed in the near future. In the middle of the show, Matt and I talk about the work that it takes to launch a successful Kickstarter and creating a travel bag from idea to releasing it on the market. Towards the end of the show, we address Matt's productivity levels from living, working, and eating in the same building versus being location independent. Without further ado, let's jump into the show. And Matt, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Pretty good, Chris. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on, my friend. And you're reporting to us from, where are you in Spain? Southern Spain, right on the uh, right on the Mediterranean in Malaga. How much time have you spent in Spain now? It's been on and off, maybe like uh, a year, year and a half. Um, I was in China for from 2004 to 2015, I think, and um, we left then and with my fiance, and uh, we've kind of been wandering around the the earth. We were in the states for three months and hit all the hot spots: Austin, Seattle. Chicago, my hometown of Detroit, and New York City, and uh, and then uh, went to Thailand and hung out in Southeast Asia for a couple of months, and uh, so it's a, it's a lot of back and forth. Um, you know, her working with uh, with our friends at the DC is pretty helpful for me, and it's definitely not uh, curing my my jet setter <laughs> tendencies for sure. How many years did you spend in China? About 12, 12 and a half years, almost a third of my life. Yeah, it, uh, it was a long time. I, I finished up uh, my undergraduate and um, didn't really have a ton going on and I didn't really have much of a plan. And <laughs> the idea of uh, of sticking, staying around in, a, in the Midwest and, and getting a, a, a mid-level management job was you know, terrifying. So, um, I was on the first thing smoking and it just happened to be a teaching English program in, uh, in this tiny city of 12 million people that I'd never heard of in Southern China. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that was it for me. Very cool. And we're going to dig into more about China. That'll be kind of the center uh, topic of this show and your background and what you guys are doing there. Let's get into you as an entrepreneur, Matt. Where did you start out at and how did you evolve to be the entrepreneur that you are today? Yeah, I mean, um, I started off, uh, you know, like I said, teaching English in China and kind of grew around there. I just happened to get lucky to be in Shenzhen. Um, it's kind of a... Uh, an R&D hub. It's very close to Hong Kong. Um, a ton of manufacturing was done there early in the 90s, and it's kind of moved on to being an R&D center. Um, so they were just just kind of surrounded by people that were there hustling. You know, it's like everybody who's manufacturing, everybody who who goes into China for the first time. It seems like they either go to Ewu, which is just like 
super cheap plastic garbage or you go to Shenzhen and Shenzhen's kind of like the spearhead into southern China where a lot of the high-tech manufacturing is done, all the Apple assembly is done there. Um, and so, yeah, I was just kind of in that environment. Um, so I hung out and had quite a bit of fun the first year I was there and the second year as well. And halfway through the second year, I said, well, if I'm going to stick around, I better start learning some skills. So. Mm-hmm. I went to the university there and studied Chinese for a year um, and then realized that, you know, while teaching English was, I mean, making like 35 bucks an hour teaching English, it was super easy and um, the lifestyle was fun, but, um, you know, it wasn't going to buy me a house or a boat or get me a retirement or anything like that. So I kind of started exploring uh, people who were doing other business jobs, you know, getting sales jobs is always the easiest thing to do and work for a Chinese boss who didn't speak any English and my Chinese wasn't great. So that was a fun, stressful (laughs) year. Um, But uh, yeah, really just kind of slowly started working for more and more companies. And then um, I started, uh, I was telling you earlier, I started working for a guy who was doing manufacturing for skateboard companies and um I watched the way he ran his business and a couple other buddies who were running their business and uh I thought, man, if these guys can can do it, why why can't I? Um so that was my little naivete there, uh, you know, and, and thinking that um you know, your intelligence level was a clear indicator of success in business, which is definitely not true. Um <laughs> But yeah, I mean, uh, so I was working for this guy with a skateboard company and he, um, he was, uh, a really good marketer, but very poorly organized on the back end and, uh, didn't like being in China, took every excuse or every opportunity to get out and go to Hong Kong and his books were a mess. And eventually he kind of drove that business into the ground. And, um, I had left like six months before that because I was going to school in in Hong Kong. I was doing part-time for my master's degree. And um, so basically, yeah, he was like, look, you can't keep taking these half days. I was leaving at like 4 p.m. twice a week. And he was like, oh, you can't keep taking these half days. And I was like, oh, man, you're out of your mind. A big blow up and I left. And uh, so, I mean, my initial reaction, you know, my initial move was to, you know, he was selling um, skateboards and flat brim caps. This is when flat brim caps were all the rage, the snapback craze. Mm-hmm. Um, they're still popular, but not like they were. And um, so he was only selling those and skateboards. He, any other inquiries? You know, a lot of these brands need a lot of help with clothing. Clothing is really difficult to manufacture. You've got different cuts, different sizes. You know, I always tell people, they're like, oh, I want to start a clothing line. You're like, okay, you know, if you have um, three shirts you want to do in four sizes, that's not three products. That's really 12 products to manage. you got three products and then four sizes of each. So clothing is, is really difficult, um, but that's, you know, where we saw our, the easiest opportunity for us and the easiest way to get people to to start talking to me was to sell them other products that they needed that my old company didn't want to sell. Um, and that's kind of how I started getting my toes wet in that, in that business. And, um, yeah, really focused on clothing for a while and, and then understood why it was so difficult and then eventually moved into to bag manufacturing and, so now the business, basically, we work with a core group of clients that um, is manufacturing, you know, that we're manufacturing accessories for their fashion line. So hats and belts and wallets and bags and cases and all that kind of stuff. How big is your team? 
I think we're at, oh, geez, I think we're at like 12 or 13 now. And are, are they all remote or do you have a central office in, in China? We do have a central office in China, but unfortunately it's not very full. Um, we <laughs> got the office when we had for like 10 people, but I think there's like three there. And then Jamin, when he's in town, um, we use it as kind of a storage facility as well. It's, it's a, it's a kind of a cool place, a townhouse that we got and turned into an office. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've been so, uh, focused on systems and processes that it's enabled us. And it all started when, uh, our our first hire, our manager came to me a couple of years ago and she was like, look, Matt, she's like, I love working with you guys, but I have to resign. Uh, I have to go, you know, I'm getting married and I have to go to my hometown. It's time to have kids and all that stuff. And we're like, no, no, no. I'm like, we can figure this out. We can figure this out. So my business partner and I, Jamin, really dove into uh, work the system and getting things done and all that stuff. And um, what came out of that was this super long manufacturing process that we use to um to work with these these fashion and clothing companies so now uh more than half the team works remotely i haven't been in china in a year and a half um and uh yeah it's uh it's kind of the cornerstone of the business these days you know we spent this last year you know the the long sob story of uh, putting too many eggs in one basket with uh, sourcing clients and uh last year kind of whooping it up and enjoying my summer. I was in Barcelona for six weeks in the, in the Gothic quarter, wandering around all day, working two hours a day. And, um, and it all kind of fell apart. You know, we had a client and we were, you know, doing six figure orders with several times a year and constantly having orders come in. And so we kind of got to the point uh, last fall where that fell apart and I, you know, went on the road and just started wandering a little bit and was kind of depressed about the business, you know, that we'd spent so much time building it up and we built this system around this one client and tried to look for more and weren't able to find any. Um, they kept, kept us super busy with their demands and, um, you know, it was really tough to look at the mirror and say, you know, after six years of doing this, you know, we could have that all ripped away from us so fast um, was kind of scary. And I just didn't want to put that effort into rebuilding something that could fall apart so easily. Um, and now, you know, I'm kind of trying to look at it as a blessing in disguise because I wouldn't have worked as hard to build up the systems and things that we have in place for our Amazon products and learning how to work with Kickstarter and learning how to market and all these kind of things that we're chasing at now. So yeah, now I'm most um, excited to, to start really throwing some products through our Amazon process and seeing what works and what doesn't, you know, we kind of did it the reverse way of most people where they throw something up on Amazon and it does well. And then they figure out how to, <laughs> all the things that they're missing. We tried it with a couple of products. It didn't go as well as we wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we kind of paused it a little bit and said, okay, you know, we're going to dive in all this information and, and write the process for this whole business. Um, from the get-go so that we have a whole system built before we kind of spend a bunch of time in it. You know, I, I was fortunate enough to save up some, some capital um, from the, from the glory days a couple of years ago and, and just been sitting on it. Um, but yeah, looking at a way to kind of deploy that and through Amazon and make calculated decisions. So basically what we've tried to do is build 
a templated system where we can look at any product, you know, a tea mug or a coaster or a teddy bear or a microphone or whatever, and look at that opportunity on Amazon based on the competition and the um, and our cost of goods from China and, and look at those and be able to make apples to apples comparison between all of those different products. And hopefully, you know, we have a system where we can just have a pipeline of these products and, and push them out to Amazon profitably and then scale up the winners and move away from the losers. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what I'm most excited about going into next year as well as the Kickstarter that we're launching as well. <laughs> Tell us about that, man. Yeah. So, uh, we really did, you know, like a, a scratch my own itch product and, uh, trying to make, you know, something for me as this kind of, uh, on the road CEO where I'm like, you know, living in an Airbnb one week and then staying with family and renting a place here and traveling here, um, really forced my hand into figuring out how to be effective, uh, be an effective worker when you're, when you're not m stuck in one place, you don't have an office to go to every day. Um, right. I was that guy that was living in the office and I'd walk downstairs at seven 30 and get it started. And, exercise in the office and I, I didn't have to leave at all when I was in China with this big huge you know I'm a townhouse a five-story townhouse and I lived on the roof and all my employees came to me and we had a cook that came in every day and made food for everybody um so yeah I mean um trying to figure out how to how to make that an effective how to have a bag that I could take out in the day, in the morning with all my stuff, all my work stuff, my workout gear and, and be out for the day, um, every day easily. Um, as well as being able to just have that same backpack and, and, um, take it for a weekend trip anywhere. You know, that's one of the beautiful things about Europe is it's very well connected with trains and, and planes. Um, so we have business in the UK and customers in Sweden and, and all over Europe as well. So, um, being able to, to, to do that and, and have a, a, a bag of, um, a core unit that can be a day pack as well as a travel pack, as well as, you know, when we have like a DSLR configuration, um, all kinds of stuff. So we really tried to kind of be inspired by a lot of the, um, travel bags that are out there now and, uh, make something that was really pretty. You know, a lot of them, the, some of the bags that were raising millions of dollars over this summer, you know, they kind of look like, uh, duffel bags or something like that they have a lot of cool features and things but they're just not that aesthetically pleasing so a lot of our focus was to design something that people would like to wear and like to take around with them but also was super super functional um so we used like an electronics uh, grid where you can fit whatever you want on the front of the the bag um the clamshell opens up in the middle so you can use it like a luggage um and then it's got a built-in laptop carrier um, case in the back as well. And, yeah, it's super functional bag. And we're trying to kind of build um, a line of products around that very functional travel uh, market. And, uh, yeah, I think it's going to be fun for us. And we're using it all the time and traveling with them all over the place. You know, I got it when I was in... Uh, where was I in the States and used it from traveling from the States to Thailand and then Thailand back to Europe. And, uh, I use it every day and yeah, very enjoyable. I wonder if you can share some things that you've learned about doing a Kickstarter. It's a ton of work. Um, <laughs> I can really, I really is. Yeah. I think, uh, that was one of the big things 
for us, you know, we, we even have a partners who are, have done quite a bit of it as well. And, um, you know, it's just one of those things where the number, the number of things that have to get ticked off the list. I mean, it's, it's way more complicated for us than, uh, than an Amazon product launch. Um, because, there's so many more soft skills involved, you know, the branding and the photography and the video and all of these things that need to kind of fall into place and the PR and the outreach and all these things that you need to have aligned. Um, that being said, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where the benefits, you know, for all these different types of products are all very, their projects are all very different, you know, not having to, to put up a bunch of capital to test um, an idea is really amazing. I mean, there's a lot of work that goes into it, but it's so much cheaper. You know, you don't have the upfront costs of a, of a lot of other things. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's one of these exciting things is the Facebook marketing is really driving a lot of these uh, projects and um, being able to kind of look at some of these next generation softwares that are out there and, and become familiar with them um, seems to be a winning formula. You know, it looks like these chat bots and stuff like that are really going to be the the wave of, of commerce coming in the next couple of years. So um, we're trying to kind of implement some of these, you know, use a template, use a structure that our partners have developed after a couple of launches and make tweaks to make it as up-to-date and as, you know, kind of cutting edge as possible um, while still following best practices. So, yeah, I think... Um, looking at Facebook as a key driver, I think is really important and really spending time understanding how you're going to test your audiences and really focus in on that one. That's going to be the, the key or those five that are going to be the key, um, for you when you actually launch your product, I think is really important. Um, and yeah, making sure that you just kind of ticked all those boxes and you don't forget anything. I mean, I've seen some campaigns that, um, you know, they, they do just fine. Um, and you know, they're not super well organized or optimized. The video doesn't look amazing and, and you can still raise money. And, and that's kind of the difference. You know, I think that the days of it being a cash cow where you just put a product up and a cool video and you're, you're taking out a ton of profit, um, are probably not, it's probably not there anymore, but, um, you know, being able to, put in the time and effort, um, make a little bit of profit or even break even, you know, but have the, have that list of customers that you can put into uh, Facebook lookalike audience and advertise to other people who have similar traits to them and, and really understanding what you're building is that asset of, of a group of people who have already prepaid for your product and, um, and what you can do with that audience or that uh, customer list is pretty amazing. And it seems like the the second and third launches for these brands seem to do so much better than the first one. So I think you have to keep in mind that that first one is, is basically, you know, you're laying the foundation for, for the brand. And, and Kickstarter really is for, for brand building, um, unless you're really, really well-versed in the, in the launching um, process. But man, so much work to get something. There's so many things to think about. So I want to go back to China and I've got a question for you. What do you think your prediction will be for manufacturing in China? Because so many people are doing it these days over the next decade. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's one of those tough things. You know, the, the Chinese government has, has constantly tried to 
um, look for ways to diversify their their economy. You know, they know that this dominance is, is going to be tough to maintain. It's not the most profitable, um, but they're having a really tough time breaking away from it. You know, it's it's really a, a challenge. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I just see the thing is when people talk about manufacturing, they're like, oh, well, there's a lot of other manufacturing options like uh, Taiwan or Thailand or um, Vietnam. Um, what they don't realize is even there, basically, they're just doing assembly. Um, the, the raw materials are usually made in China for the most part. And it's just, you know, the infrastructure of the country is just set up for that. So it's so entrenched. Um, you know, it's every year, every time the currency fluctuates or a president comes in and starts saber rattling, you know, everybody says, oh, what's going to happen to China? And, and China just keeps chugging along. Um, I just don't see them being unseated by anybody. I don't see a challenge coming from anybody else. And, and for me, it's it's that same situation. I get cheaper prices offered and, oh, come to India or Bangladesh or something like that. And then you know, the, 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 the cost of working with an unknown, unless you're going to be, you know, people that are living in Ho Chi Minh and they want to manufacture in Vietnam, awesome. You can sit there and watch it, you know, but for me to to shift um, to another location, there has to be a significant price savings and, and I haven't seen that, you know. I've, I've, I've gone and quoted out projects in Vietnam as opposed to our Chinese suppliers and found costs to be higher. Um, and, and my master degree is, is in Chinese business law, so you know, I know when things jump off the tracks in China, I know what to do. Um, I know how to best protect myself. And so I think a lot of companies are going to kind of be like that with me, where it's like, unless there's a significant problem in China or a super significant opportunity somewhere else, it's hard to see um, them losing their manufacturing edge. Um, I, I think people misunderstand how, how big China is. You know, it's 25% of the world's population, 20% of the world's population. Um, and the competition there is fierce. So it's just really tough for anybody to compete with them because, you know, intellectual property is still fairly young and, and, and burgeoning, um, but it is coming uh, slowly to China. Uh, and I think there are things that people can do to protect themselves now, but that lack of intellectual property means that you know, and, and these manufacturing hubs where you have a lot of people doing the same thing in the same area, if one guy comes up with a great new idea for making, you know, lighter um, lighters better than somebody else and his neighbor can see him doing that, then he's just going to start doing that as well. And it's kind of this, um, this uh, socialism by lack of intellectual property where anybody who anybody who has the the fortitude to go out and just start doing it the way somebody else is can just do that and um you know there's not a ton of protection for those ideas um you know so it's it's really difficult it's difficult to to make it in china and it's difficult to to see any any reason that people would leave out there you know when the the pricing is so competitive and the skill set is so sharp you know I'm, i'm sure that there's on the high tech end, you know, there's a lot of stuff made in Japan and Germany still, but it's just really, even then that stuff is sent to China and assembled there. Do you think it's going to be easier to, to work in China? Work mean manufacturing China? Yeah, I think it's getting easier and easier and easier. You know, I mean, they never had AliExpress when I got started or even Alibaba, which That's is true. kind of crazy and hard to believe. Um, 
So yeah, I think that the wave of people moving on from just buying off-the-shelf products and throwing them on Amazon and optimizing the listing is kind of slowly dying off here as that becomes super competitive. And Amazon has said, you know, look, they want to get the people closer to the as close to the manufacturer as possible and, and get rid of as many middlemen as possible. So I think that kind of comes down to the core of things is where's your what value are you adding? If you're going to sell on Amazon at this at this marketplace, you know, you really need to have some way to differentiate yourself. Otherwise, you're fighting that pricing battle. And then for people who are not selling on Amazon, you know, their their core value proposition is um, having an identity, you know, where on Amazon, it's really an anonymous seller almost, and all you're looking at is the product. Um, people that have Shopify sites, I, I see that have done really well. Um, you know, specifically guys like Peter Keller at Fringe Sport and um, Eric Vanderholtz with Deer Brand, these guys that don't necessarily sell on Amazon. You know, there's a ton of personality and content and things like that that goes into their brand, and, and they are building, you know, strong brands. Um, and that fits their skill set very well. So I think making sure that people understand, um, you know, where their skill set is. Uh, but I, I do think manufacturing is is getting easier. And if it's a core, you know, I see a lot of people that that are doing these Kickstarter projects and stuff like that, and they want to come over and and sit down here. I tell people the best way to do it is the iron ass strategy. You just come and sit down and don't leave. You know, you make the factories teach you what to do. They will. Um, the trade shows are, are getting stronger and stronger and having more and more tie-ins with Amazon sellers. I see uh, Greg Mercer from Jungle Scout doing a lot of presentations at the Global Sources Show. I used to do those presentations as well, talking about intellectual property and stuff. And, and I think that, you know, they're very quick to, to follow those trends of where the people, where the sellers are um, and the people that will buy those products. So, you know, everybody wants to align interests and, and do business. So they're going to try to make it easier and easier and easier for people to manufacture. Um, and, and, you know, that that continues to, to get easier for people to do. You know, it used to be just being in China. That's what we, when we were getting started, just being in China was, was enough to, to kind of give you the edge. And it still is, you know, just having a sourcing office and saying like, look, I have an office on the ground in China. We have in-house team of QC inspectors and project managers. Like that's enough to get you some percentage points from people uh, sourcing wise, because you can kind of take all that headache out of it and take on the responsibility. And, and that's really, you know, we've been fortunate there in, in one sense is that for the most part, um, once we get customers onboarded with clothing and fashion, they're very happy to just say, hey, here's my designs for the season. Give me pricing and uh, and don't really question it too much. You know, I think um, people that are growing and want to have their own supply chains, you know, it makes a lot of sense to just go over to China and, and, and kind of figure it out. Um but yeah, I mean Shenzhen and, and Southern China, especially that's that's where my expertise is. It's just made for doing business. The whole city is, is about doing business. I'd like to ask you about when you were working and living in the same house, and you had your office downstairs, and you were living upstairs. Do you feel like now? Now, I guess you you would 
consider mm. yourself more location independent being in Spain and then having the team that's partly remote and still having the office. Do you feel like you're just as productive while you're on the road as you did when you had that whole setup? Cause that kind of seems like a, for somebody that really wants to be very productive and bang out some work, that seems like the ideal setup where you live, you know, on the fifth story and then your office is on the bottom floor and then all your employees are coming to you in the morning and that sort of thing. So yeah, I'm curious about your feelings. Yeah, it was, uh, it was amazing for me. Um, but you also kind of get stuck in that mindset. You know, that was when I was just really focused on sourcing. Um, living in China can be difficult too. You know, the internet access can be incredibly frustrating. Um, and then just kind of get stuck in a rut. You know, if, if I could have it optimally, you know, I would go back and spend two or three months there a year maybe um, and just kind of reinvigorate the team a little bit. Um, you know, and and hopefully I got there. You know, I'd love to be doing some um, uh, some meetups and stuff around the the big trade shows and things like that. If if we can kind of get this Amazon thing rolling, and I can kind of take my eyes off of that for a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's I think everybody has a different understanding of what optimization is. Um, and for me, you know, it was a it was a life a life work balance thing. You know, my fiance was not as excited about living in this house out in the middle of, you know, it was like a 45, 50 minute train ride to get back into the city center. Um, so we were kind of in a remote spot, but yeah, it was, um, it was amazing while it lasted. It kind of had everything at my fingertips and uh, really enjoyed that. But I think going forward and trying to communicate, um, and use all these tools, you know, Facebook, especially Instagram, all those things are blocked in China. So it, it really is difficult to, to use and, and work. And China is just a stressful environment. I mean, there's the only reason I lasted that long was the last three, four years I was out in the middle of nowhere in this townhouse. Um, and, uh, to really kind of rule my own world. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I like being on the road. Uh, sometimes it's frustrating to, to feel like you're at, not at maximum efficiency, but you're also kind of living life. I, I think the problem with China and, and me being stuck there all the time is, you know, unless you're really pulling down a ton of cash, it's kind of like, what's, what's the, the point of, of living like this? Um, yeah. And kind of having that stress every day, you know, it's not, it's not like a, it's not like fun Asia like Thailand, um, but uh, you know it's, it's just a little more stressful. It's really tight and compact. There's a lot of people there. The pollution. Um, everybody smokes cigarettes, which really bothered me. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean it's you know, there's pluses and balances to everything, and and while you do kind of get quote unquote optimized what you're doing, you also kind of get stuck in that tunnel vision where you're just looking at what's immediately in front of you. Um, right. And so, yeah, and then that's a challenge with a place like Thailand or Spain too, where it's like the lifestyle can be so relaxed sometimes that you you lose a little bit of that fire in your belly, which is also kind of dangerous. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, it's a challenge to kind of balance all of those things for sure. Um, for me, you know, this is is really the optimal place because I've got time with my team in Asia in the morning. Um, I've got all day with my customers in Europe, and then I've got the evening with the team in the States and customers in the States as well. So I really like this setup. Um, so I'm looking forward to settling down for a couple of years at least and only traveling to 
five or six DC events a year. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a good life. I'm curious if if there's any, like you named some of the negative things that were happening to you towards the end of your time in China. And then now you're, you bounced around for a while and you're kind of spending more time in Spain. I'm curious, like what are, what are some other positive things or positive impacts that being more independent of your location in China has had on you, maybe your relationships or business? Yeah, I think it's kind of opened my eyes a little bit to the wider uh, picture of things and, and kind of traveling around more and meeting more people. Um, I found a really great co-working space that I really like here in Malaga with a bunch of young people doing interesting stuff from around the world. And, um, you know, you get, like I said, I kind of get that tunnel vision. And I think everybody kind of has that same knowledge as me because you're around, you know, people in China and Shenzhen and, and the, the foreigners that are there are almost all doing manufacturing. Um, but then going to places like Bangkok and, you know, doing my talk on manufacturing and realizing people, you know, still have a ton, ton, ton of questions. Um, so yeah, I think that trying to, trying to get some of this stuff up and running, um, which I feel like we're getting close to, and then just kind of hopefully monitoring that machine like I do now with my sourcing business and just try to find more input um, for it. I'd love to focus on doing more kind of my own kind of content creation and helping people, you know, work with China better. It's a huge opportunity um, to source from China and eventually to sell into China. Um, So I think that's, that's kind of kind of be my focus is, you know, being able to stare at the ocean every day and, 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 trying to feel like you're looking at the bigger picture, um, I think has has been really inspiring for me. I do miss being surrounded by my team though. Um, that was a a nice thing and and it was really effective work wise, but you also kind of got drugged down into being very focused on, um, the tasks at hand and less focused on getting all that stuff off my plate, you know, that's something that Ian, uh, Sean talked about from the DC, uh, from the TMBA podcast is you, you end up thinking that your, your presence is more important to your business than it is. And really you probably do better if you just kind of got out of the way. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what we found is, you know, as long as we can be available for questions about stuff like that, you know, having somebody else execute on our process for us, um, if you can train them well is, is a really, is really the best way to go about it, you know, and now we're trying to use what we've built in China, this engine, this sourcing engine where we can make, we can find product, find suppliers for anything, evaluate those suppliers, get pricing, figure out who we want to work with, get samples and be able to do that really fast. Now the, the, uh, the, 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 problem is just figuring out how do we apply that in a better way, you know, and the, and the sourcing business has been, you know, it's intense. It's a lot of work for them. Um, and finding, you know, our new focus this year is finding people to partner with either people who are selling on Amazon that don't want to spend a ton of time, uh, sourcing in China or influencers that have an audience where they're, you know, only making Amazon affiliate commissions or something like that. And, rather than building our own audiences from the ground, which for every product, which is difficult, but you know, we are trying to do that with a, with the agile travel bag, but um, trying to figure out ways to uh, apply that, um, that sourcing machine that we've built in a different way while we build our own machines uh, for Amazon and, um, and uh, Kickstarter and stuff like that. 
Matt, do you have any tips for the five and six figure entrepreneurs that are out there hustling away, trying to build a seven figure location independent business? Yeah, I think um, if you really want to be location independent and you really want to scale up, you got to focus on process and you got to focus on um, finding people to come in and, and fill in your blank spots. You know, I think trying to be an expert in everything is very difficult and you end up being, you know, kind of a jack of all trades and a master of none. Mm-hmm. So if you can kind of understand the big picture and you can find, um, you know, the value that you're creating with whatever you're doing try to find the stuff that's repetitive, right? Start with that, right? Processes for that. And then try to find, um, people that you can hire, you know, part-time, full-time, whatever to kind of, um, help you help bring processed work to you where you can just be the decision maker and, and kind of move things along. I think that's really a key, um, especially for being location independent. You've got to have those processes and you got to have people to kind of help you out. Very good. Matt, anything else you'd like to add and tell the listeners before we sign off? Uh, not too much more. We are running a, an affiliate program for our Kickstarter. Um, I'll send you the link and the information. So if people want to jump on and help promote that, uh, it's a 10% affiliate link that you can track um, through, I think it's Kickbacker or something, one of those things. Um, but yeah, really super excited to be launching this product here in the next couple of weeks. And um Love to kind of get feedback on on the setup and everything. So if anybody wants to, I'm more than happy to to, to talk about it. And uh, yeah, that's about it. All right, my friend. I want to give you a huge thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for sharing your tips and your tricks and all your wisdom with us, Matt. Thanks for joining us today. No problem. And listeners, we're going to sign off there. We hope to see you guys again on the next episode. And goodbye, everybody. The Entrepreneur House is a business accelerator for established entrepreneurs. Imagine spending an extended period of time with other successful entrepreneurs working together and growing your business. Day-to-day you interact with other driven and smart business people. Spending an extended period of time around them alters your business and your mentality around business. Goals are set, business grows, new partnerships develop, greater profit margins are achieved, the productivity skyrockets for the attendees, and you'll get to have an incredible adventure while doing it. Be sure to check out the details at theentrepreneurhouse.com as soon as possible. For those of you that are interested and have some questions, don't hesitate to contact us, theentrepreneurhouse.com. We will respond as soon as we can. For now, saludos from somewhere in the world.